In February of 1978, 23-year-old Stephen Kubaki was enrolled in a small Christian university called Hope College, located in the city of Holland on Lake Michigan's southeastern shores. He was a studious but eccentric young history major who once co-wrote an op-ed for the campus newspaper about the inadequate collection of books in the university library, arguing that the school should install an electronic security system to safeguard against theft. Bob Namar graduated from Hope in the spring of 78, and although he didn't know Steve personally, found that his reputation preceded him. Fellow students talked about Steve like he was some kind of free-spirited genius, and even though he was fairly conservative in his lifestyle, the fact that he lived off campus gave him the air of a rogue scholar. He was definitely a big Dungeons and Dragons guy, Namar said, but he owned it. It was cool. He wasn't the average nerd, that's for sure. Kubaki was also known to be an enthusiastic outdoorsman who had previously climbed mountains while studying abroad in Europe. He's been cross-country skiing in the same area bordering Lake Michigan before. The trip that weekend hadn't been particularly unusual, but his solo skiing trip, planned for February of 78, proved to be one that would change his life forever. Steve had planned to spend the weekend on a solo cross-country skiing trip, returning on Monday at the very latest. Fellow students say that when Monday rolled around, Steve's absence was only met with mild concern. Yet when the usually punctual and diligent student was a no-show for a second consecutive day, it quickly became obvious that something was terribly wrong. How he was first reported missing honestly depends on who is telling the story. But if a local news report from February 21, 1978 is to be believed, snowmobilers in Sagatuck spotted a pair of cross-country skis and a backpack lying abandoned in the snow. They immediately contacted authorities who launched an air and land search. A missing persons report was soon filed with the local police department who were able to coordinate their search to the area where Steve had supposedly started his trip. It was there that they found a 200-yard trail of footprints in the snow, the same size and track as the ski boots that Steve would have been wearing. But eerily, these same footprints led past the edge of Lake Michigan, ending abruptly in a way which led search and rescue personnel to conclude that Steve had somehow drowned under a thick layer of unbroken ice. Although it could never be fully proven, the official conclusion was that Steve was dead, and it would only be a matter of time before the currents of Lake Michigan deposited his decomposing corpse somewhere on the shores of Lake Michigan. Steve's family was devastated, and resigned themselves to waiting a long, long time for any answers to the many questions surrounding his disappearance. But they had no idea just how close, or how shocking, those answers would be. Steve Kubaki had no idea he was even missing when he opened his eyes one Saturday night and found himself lying on a patch of grass in a place he wasn't familiar with. As he came to his senses, he realized he didn't recognize the clothes he was wearing, nor the backpack he was in possession of. Neither his original backpack nor his skis were anywhere to be seen, and somehow he didn't remember where or how he'd lost them. Feeling extremely disoriented, Steve got up, approached a passing stranger, and asked them where they were. Pittsfield, the stranger replied in confusion. Pittsfield? Stephen replied, initially believing himself to be in the Ann Arbor suburb of the same name. How did I get all the way over to Ann Arbor? Ann Arbor? The stranger sounded even more confused now. Buddy, this is in Michigan. This is Pittsfield, Massachusetts. See? The stranger then pointed to a nearby parked car, one clearly showing a Massachusetts license plate. Stephen was dumbfounded. He had only intended to ski around the countryside outside of Holland, Michigan. Instead, not only had he somehow ended up more than 700 miles east of his proposed route, but he had absolutely no recollection of how he'd gotten there. The situation was a horrifying one in its own. But when David passed a nearby newsstand and set eyes on the newspaper, he almost passed out in shock. In the top corner of the page, the date read 5579. But that was impossible, because it meant that Stephen had just spent the past 15 months in some kind of waking coma, 
one in which he had had somehow made an almost thousand mile journey across the country. In a state of complete shock, Stephen managed to recall that he had an aunt in a place called Great Barrington, Massachusetts, which turned out to only be around 20 miles from Pittsfield itself. Since he had no money, he managed to hitchhike out to his aunt's place, who says she received the shock of her life when he saw him at the door. It was like seeing a ghost, she later said. Steve's emotional reunion with the family, who'd long thought him dead, became a national media sensation. At a hastily called press conference, Steve told a gathering of reporters that when he woke up in Pittsfield, he was wearing a different set of clothes from those he'd set out in the previous year. He also had a new backpack filled with maps and hitchhiking signs that suggested that he had traveled extensively during his year-long unconscious episode. He was somehow in possession of memorabilia from Sacramento, San Francisco, Reno, Chicago, and Utah. He also had $40 in cash, new glasses, sneakers, and a t-shirt from a marathon that had taken place in Wisconsin. I feel like I've done a lot of running, he said in an interview the week he reappeared. His memory right up until his disappearance remained intact. He said the last thing he remembered was feeling cold and scared of being lost in the frozen darkness. Steve told a reporter that he believed his blackout was caused by exhaustion and exposure and said he would see a medical doctor for a physical but, despite his parents' insistence, would not be seeing any kind of therapist or psychiatrist. My father was going to sign over the house to me. I had three courses at school and no trouble, he said. There was no trouble with girls. I had a job lined up with a Holland Sentinel newspaper. I was in a good place mentally so I don't think that side of things has anything to do with it. Obviously, Steve didn't end up taking the job at the Sentinel, and his bachelor's degree was awarded absentia from Hope College when he was thought to have passed away. Although drowning was the most commonly accepted theory, some of the detectives who investigated his disappearance had their doubts that Stephen was actually dead. At one point, detectives were so flummoxed that they sent Stephen's dental records to Chicago to see if Kabaki might be among the serial killer John Wayne Gacy's unidentified victims. These days, Stephen is alive and well, and is working as a psychologist in the Pacific Northwest. For decades, he had refused to speak about his disappearance with reporters, and any attempts to reach out to him are generally ignored right off the bat. Reporters have even reached out to his ex-wife, assuming that she might be able to shed some light on the mystery but she too flat out refuses to reveal what she knows. Stephen's case is perhaps one of the most fascinating cases of a missing person showing up alive, and for a number of reasons, but the lack of contemporary media coverage of the event is frankly baffling. Only in small shady corners of paranormally obsessed message boards has Stephen's case been anything close to fully explored. There, the most commonly accepted explanation ties into the fact that the site of Steve's disappearance was close to the southeastern boundary, the Lake Michigan Triangle, an area spanning from Manitowoc, Wisconsin, to Ludington, Michigan, and south to Benton Harbor, where several other mysterious disappearances are said to have taken place. But it's not just people that have fallen victim to the Bermuda Triangle's lesser-known cousin, as the area has seen numerous unexplained air disasters, shipwrecks, and vanishings that date back centuries. There are stories of ghost ships, ghost planes, heavily corroborated UFO sightings, and one particularly hair-raising tale about a competitive sailing crew that passed through what sounds like a vortex during a practice run on a calm early summer evening. After a sudden dramatic fall of fog and wind filling the main sail from two opposing directions, three wooden ships took on a life of their own and performed synchronized 360-degree turns with no one steering. But as much as some of these stories sound like something out of a cheap dime novel, and they might well be, Stephen's disappearance was well documented and is in no way an elaborate hoax. It might well be that the man suffered some kind of head injury, which would explain his memory loss, but if that was the case, why did a subsequent medical examination find him to be in perfect health? A few years after the event, Stephen Kabaki told the media that 
he was attempting to retrace the steps that he took on the day of his solo skiing trip, hoping it might give him enough clues to piece together where he had been and what he had been doing during that gap in his memory. But even after this dark pilgrimage to the place that he had disappeared, Stephen didn't seem to find any new answers, and if he did, he definitely didn't talk to any journalists about it. Yet the question remains, has Stephen remained quiet about his disappearance because it's still a mystery to him, or has he since remembered something so terrible that he can't possibly bring himself to talk about it? Little else would explain such a rigid wall of silence from his friends and relatives, but at the end of the day, it seems the enigma of Steve Kabaki's bizarre disappearance will forever remain an unsolved mystery. In June of 1969, six-year-old Dennis Martin accompanied his family on a camping trip to the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, a mountain range rising along the Tennessee-North Carolina border in the southeastern United States. The name Great Smoky Mountains comes from the natural fog that often hangs over the range, appearing as large smoke plumes from a distance. Interestingly, this fog is caused by chemicals emitted from the local flora, chemicals that have a high vapor pressure and easily form vapors at normal temperature and pressures. Yet even having heard the scientific explanation behind the phenomenon, seeing all that fog clinging to the hilltops is a very eerie sight indeed. Hailing from nearby Knoxville, Tennessee, the Martin family had a long-running tradition of celebrating Father's Day by taking camping trips to the Great Smoky Mountains. In 1969 would mark young Dennis's first trip into the woods in the company of his father, older brother, and grandpa. The group drove out to Cades Cove, an isolated valley located in the Tennessee section of the park, then hiked out towards Russell Field, where they set up camping and began preparing for their first night under the stars. The following morning, they set off for a place known as Spence Field, a picturesque highland meadow and popular camping spot which was bisected by the rolling hills and jagged mountain peaks of the Appalachian Trail. When the group arrived at Spence Field, Dennis and his older brothers set off to explore the campsite and reportedly talked to many of the other campers who had pitched their tents nearby. This is how they got talking to a ragtag group made up of other campers' children who made fast friends with the Martin boys. Dennis' father was pleased to see his son getting along so well with the other kids and having his sons occupied meant the adults could get on with the important task of assembling their four-man tent. Once the task was completed, Dennis was still playing with the group of other kids, and his father says he watched as the group gleefully took up hiding positions from which to playfully ambush a group of approaching adults. When the grown-ups entered the kids' make-believe kill zone, they all jumped out, growling and roaring like wild animals as they set upon their laughing parents. All but one. All but little Dennis. His father watched with growing concern as the seconds ticked by, and Dennis had yet to emerge from his hiding spot. Eventually, he couldn't bear it anymore, and after rising from his camping chair, Dennis's father marched off the spot where he had last seen his six-year-old son and began calling out his name. But what started out as stern, fatherly commands soon degenerated into terrified pleas, and as he continued to call out in desperation, the other families began to realize that something was terribly wrong. Once Dennis's grandpa knew he was missing, he set the group into action, sending one group two miles up the Appalachian Trail with his son, while he led another group back towards the Cades Cove Ranger Station, arriving there around 8.30pm that night. Thus began an extensive, well-publicized search and rescue operation, in which National Park Service personnel was supplemented by National Guard soldiers and even a unit of Green Berets. At the peak of the search operation, more than 1,400 people were operating in the few square miles around Spencefield, but not a single one found anything that could lead them to the missing boy. However, in the aftermath of the operation, the search efforts drew a great deal of criticism from search and rescue experts far and wide who said the large number of personnel involved potentially obscuring tracks and ground that was already difficult to track over due to heavy rain. Shockingly, a shoe print belonging to that of a child was actually found at one point, 
but the track was dismissed as belonging to one of the Boy Scouts that was helping with the search. Later, however, investigators kicked themselves when they found that the tracks were determined to have come from a child who was missing one shoe, which disappeared on the banks of a stream. Some suggesting it was possible that the tracks belonged to Martin, and this theory was supported when a discarded child-sized shoe and sock were found just three days later. Although search and rescue personnel continued their search for more than two weeks, scouring the hillsides night and day in continual shifts, no further clues to Martin's whereabouts were ever found. The Martin family was so understandably desperate for answers that they offered a $5,000 reward for any information that would reunite them with their beloved Dennis. This got the attention of a handful of so-called psychics, who some might argue sought to exploit the Martin family's grief and maybe cashing in if they guessed the right area of the Smokies to search. Surprisingly, none of these psychics ever proved to be of any help. Many years later in 1985, a man who had apparently been illegally collecting American ginseng in the park claimed to have come across the skeletal remains of a child while exploring the woods. The man said he should have reported the find, but was terrified of being prosecuted for his prohibited herbal hobby. Not only that, but he was also unable to point investigators in the direction of the site he'd found the bones in the first place. There have been many theories that have attempted to explain what happened to young Dennis Martin that day. Most detectives, both amateur and professional, believe that Dennis became disoriented whilst looking for a hiding place, maybe even forgetting his way back to camp when he emerged from it. Either way, Dennis then strayed further from the camp and could easily have fallen down one of the many steep slopes and ravines that dotted the area surrounding Spencefield. However, Dennis was wearing a bright red t-shirt when he went missing, not something that would be easy for search and rescue teams to miss. Dennis would have to be completely covered in foliage to remain undetected with that color of shirt, and despite it being feasible due to his small size, the likelihood of that is extremely low. Others are quick to remind us of the presence of black bears in the area, as well as copperhead vipers and feral pigs, all of which would have posed a considerable threat to six-year-old Martin. Park rangers told investigating police that an underweight bear had been caught in a boar trap in the Spencefield area just two weeks earlier. Although the bear was released safely, the incident suggested that it may have been struggling to find enough food, prompting to turn to a less familiar source of food. Yet however tragic and brutal the aforementioned theories are, Dennis's father believes something considerably more sinister. Based on the eyewitness account of one Harold Key, who says he heard a loud scream on the very same afternoon that Dennis disappeared, Dennis's dad firmly believed that his son was kidnapped by an opportunistic predator. Shortly after he heard the scream, Harold Key claimed to have seen a disheveled bearded man with wild unkempt hair fleeing through the woods in an apparent bid to remain undetected by the nearby campers. Harold's family went on to explain that they saw a flash of red on the figure's shoulders, which some believe was actually Dennis himself, slung over the shoulder of this mysterious figure as they carried him away. Harold later speculated that the man may have been a moonshiner, explaining his reluctance to be seen. Despite the report, FBI investigators ultimately dismissed it, saying that as much as Harold meant well, his account was frankly unreliable as his timeline of events were off. But one retired park ranger lamented the failure to properly follow up either the footprints or the sighting of the rough-looking man, arguing that as the location of the sighting was downhill from where Dennis disappeared, it was possible to cover that distance in the time frame, even carrying a child, but that the individual in question would have some impressive strength, stealth, and endurance. So if this is the case, who is this hairy mystery man, this bearded vagrant who was apparently capable of such an impressive physical feat, even if it was in the context of the despicable abduction of a child? Given the lack of investigation into his sighting or his tracks, it seems we might never know. But even if we did get to the bottom of the mystery of a man living in the Appalachian Mountains with a penchant for kidnapping children, I don't think the answers would bring us any solace. Maybe the closure would be worth it, especially for the family, but nightmares can be a high price to pay, and wondering what happened to young Dennis Martin can give even the most hardened true crime reader 
some very sleepless nights. Established in 1908 by Theodore Roosevelt, the Big South Trail is an 11-mile hiking route that winds through the rugged Comanche Peak Wilderness into Colorado's Rocky Mountain National Park. Experienced hikers have described the Big South Trail as of average difficulty, but as one said, there are some areas where the ledges were only 24 inches wide. It can be really tough, and if you're not in shape, it'll take a lot out of you. Known for its picturesque beauty, the trail is also something of a wildlife haven and is home to elk, bobcats, black bears, and mountain lions, just to name a few. While average temperatures on the trail range from highs in the upper 60s in the summer to frigid lows of 10 to 15 degrees in the winter, making it perfect for both sunny and snowy outdoor activities. The area's wild natural beauty is partly what motivated brothers Alan and Arlen Atadero to found the Pudra River Resort a place for hikers and outdoorsmen of every variety to indulge in their hobby of choice. Alan mentioned that he and his brothers spent so much time there that they felt that they were becoming part of the landscape itself. So in the end, it just made sense to move their families out there. Life at the resort was relatively carefree until the fall of 1999 when a Christian singles group was helping Alan prepare for winter in exchange for free lodging. On October 2nd, the Christian singles group decided that they wanted to go visit a nearby trout farm just short of two miles from the resort itself. Alan knew several of the singles group well and since his six-year-old daughter Jocelyn wanted to join them, Alan knew that there was no way that he could give her permission without her three-year-old brother Jared wanting to tag along. So, since he trusted the singles group, Alan gave them permission to take his kids with them on their hike at about 10 o'clock that morning. Excited to be on one of his first real outdoor adventures, Jared would keep on running ahead of the group, but no more than about a hundred feet before his guardians in the singles group would call him back. At around 11.30, the group stopped to talk to some fishermen that their little boy scout had run into while on point, and after a brief conversation, they continued on down the trail. By this time, the group had begun to separate or spread out as they walked. Some people faster and some slower, with at least one adult with Jared's sister and Jared, who continuously ran ahead of everybody else. Shortly afterward, little Jared rounded a corner on the trail and disappeared from view. Technically, he was no further ahead than he usually was, so his guardians didn't worry too much. But when they too rounded the corner, there was no sign of him in the little beige coat he was wearing. One of the singles groups rushed ahead to try to find the boy, but he was nowhere to be found. And as it turned out, that last image of young Jared turning the blind corner on the trail was the last time anyone would see him alive. Over the following few days, a huge search and rescue operation was mounted, but not a single sign of Jared Atadero was found. In fact, it would take almost four years for any clues of his demise to be found, but these clues seemed to only raise many more questions than they answered. After searching for approximately an hour, a few members of the hiking group rushed back to the Pudra River Resort to give Alan the bad news that his three-year-old son was lost in the woods. In a panic, Alan immediately drives out to meet the rest of the group, helping them continue to search for another hour or so. It is during this time that some of the eleven-person hiking party say that they heard some kind of high-pitched scream, including Alan's six-year-old daughter, Jocelyn. I asked her what kind of scream it was somebody getting attacked or somebody playing with someone, Alan later said. She said it sounded like a playful scream, as if someone was going up to tag him. Since it seemed like Jared was within earshot, the group continued to search intensively for him, but no matter how hard they tried, they just couldn't locate their lost toddler. So just before 4 o'clock that afternoon, Alan rushed back to the resort to call 911. Less than 30 minutes later, Larimer County Emergency Service Specialist Bill Nelson receives an emergency pager alert, informing them that a child had gone missing on the Big South Trail. In turn, Bill contacts his search and rescue manager who immediately musters multiple SAR teams to prepare for a large but delicate operation. 
Within two hours of the original 911 call being made, search and rescue personnel had boots on the ground at the Lower Big South Trailhead, with a total of 65 people involved in the search for Jared. An hour and a half into their search, rescue personnel had scoured the majority of the trail and still hadn't located Jared. As a result, the area of operations was vastly expanded, with reinforcements including Air Force helicopters due to arrive the following morning. At 7 a.m. on October 2nd of 1999, a Cheyenne-based UH-1N Huey helicopter made its first pass over the Big South Trail and remained the search and rescue team's eye in the sky until late in the morning. After returning to Fort Collins Loveland Municipal Airport to refuel, the helicopter arrived back in the search area at around 3.30 that afternoon. However, during its second patrol over the trail, the helicopter struggled with the mountain conditions and stalled out plummeting more than a hundred feet before smashing through the pine canopy near the trailhead. Aboard the Huey were four USAF servicemen, but also a representative of the Larimer County Search and Rescue Team named Mark Sheets. When it crashed, Mark was the only passenger who was not securely in a seat, as he was on the floor with the door open. He said that when he saw the rotors hit the top of the trees and pieces of helicopters sprayed into the forest, he rushed to close the door but a severed tree limb found its way into the hold and struck the Air Force doctor on board squarely in the face, fracturing the doctor's eye socket and causing blood to pour from an open wound. By some stroke of good luck, the Air Force crew was able to escape from the helicopter's wreckage, but Mark Sheets had been completely knocked out cold and was still trapped in the mass of crumbled metal that was still in danger of exploding. Nearby search and rescue members ran to the downed helicopter smashed in a window and managed to pull the unconscious sheets out before he could come to any more harm. But he had still received a severe concussion and a 13-inch L-shaped gash that left his femur exposed. Mark had also suffered three broken vertebrae in his lower back and a broken shoulder, possibly from being pulled from the wreckage so violently. The helicopter crash most definitely set the search back a great deal, but thankfully, all survived and the search efforts continued into their third day. Day 3 saw the arrival of specially trained police diving teams who explored the deep pools of the nearby Poudre River. Another helicopter was dispatched to aid the search, but encountered swirling winds that required full power to prevent crashing. This burned through the chopper's fuel supplies in no time, and it was soon forced to return to Fort Collins Air Force Base. Over the next three days, well-meaning but ill-equipped volunteers started hounding the Larimer County Sheriff's Office and Larimer County Search and Rescue to allow them to help. Three-year-old Jared had been missing for almost a week at that point, and time was running out to find him safely. They approved, and soon the number of search and rescue personnel had swelled to over 200 and included a dozen dog teams, professional trackers, a dive team, and a search plane. But even with all those bodies and assets, the search and rescue operation was a complete and utter failure as not a single usable clue to Jared's whereabouts are found. Consequently, officials are forced to notify the Atadero family that the search for Jared had been suspended. Larimer County Undersheriff Bill Nelson hastily convened a press conference. In it, he told the gathered journalists, we worked for eight solid days to begin with, and that was 24 hours a day for eight days. We did some night searching. It was limited to a certain extent, but... We did always have people out in the field to make noise, so if somebody was out there now, Jared would have heard it. He would have maybe responded. Jane Shmievsky, a member of the Larimer County Search and Rescue Canine Unit, said that the search was one of the most intense she'd ever taken part of. She'd never been involved in the search for a child before, and although it was to be expected, she was astounded at the level of media coverage. It became a real nationwide episode, she said. So, that put a lot of stress on us, and a lot of stress on the dogs. County Sheriff Justin Smith was just a lowly sergeant back in 1999, when Jared went missing. He said the helicopter crash was an extremely stressful event, which most definitely had a negative effect at a crucial period of the search, and that the intense media interest only exacerbated the situation. It's worth noting that this all took place right around the time that the grand jury of the Jean Benet Ramsey case was due to hand down indictments 
so the concept of children coming to harm loomed large in the national zeitgeist. Naturally, the media flocked to sate the public's appetite for answers, and at one point, 17 TV satellite trucks lined Colorado's Highway 14, and the area swarmed with reporters and camera crews sporting fur coats to protect them from the bitter Colorado cold. Meanwhile, police information hotlines were buzzing with calls, including a number of self-proclaimed psychics who claimed they knew where SAR operators could find the terrified but still living Jared. TV crews observed a Native American medicine man visiting the area who informed them he had arrived to perform a kind of ritual in which he would ask the mountain to return the boy to his parents. And in one particularly unusual but wholesome incident, a barefoot man with a mule showed up on the trail and volunteered his services in the search effort. But as much as the gesture was a heartfelt one, dog teams and aircraft had failed to find any sign of Jared, so one more pair of eyes on the ground proved of little use. As much as it hurt them to do so, rescue volunteers were forced to call off their search entirely, and for years, the case of little Jared's disappearance remained a complete and utter mystery. Cut to June of 2003, when hikers Rob Osborne and Gareth Watts were making their visit to the Big South Trail. We singled out the Poudre Canyon as an area we'd like to explore, Rob said, so we decided on getting there via the Big South Trail. We'd heard how gorgeous a hike it was, how beautiful and wild the area around the river was, and since that's the whole reason Gary and I got into hiking, we figured we'd pay it a visit. While on their hike, Rob and Gareth wound up in a rock field and decided to hike up around 2,000 feet to reach its top. It's remarkable country up there, but it really was a scramble, Gareth later said. You're constantly watching your feet. Focus on the area in front of you so you don't end up twisting an ankle or something. He and Rob had hiked areas in the vicinity before and were obviously aware of the Jared Atadero mystery owing to the amount of media attention it received. And, as experienced outdoorsmen, they had spent one or two occasions theorizing on the cause of the boy's disappearance. We'd figured he'd been swept downstream, maybe taken by a mountain lion, Rob said. Obviously, there was the possibility of something more sinister happening, but it's something we didn't really talk about. Having kids of our own, it just didn't bear thinking about. But since they were hiking the exact area that Jared had gone missing, the pair felt an eerie sense of dread and couldn't keep their minds off the mysterious and heartbreaking incident. But neither must have expected the discovery they were due to make that day. Rob and Gareth usually stuck to popular hiking trails, mainly for safety purposes. But on that first visit to the Big South Trail, with the thought of Jared's disappearance in their minds, they took it upon themselves to wander off the trail. We didn't set out to find anything, Gareth added. We figured if a whole team of guys couldn't find anything, there was no way we could. But I guess there was an element of what if, you know. Then about an hour into the hike, we just walked right into it. I couldn't believe my eyes at first. But there they were, clear as day. Rob and Gareth had somehow stumbled across a set of child's clothes, more than 500 feet up the trail from where he was last seen. That's when I saw the shoe... Gareth said. It was a kid's shoe, definitely, and it was pristine, like somebody had just took their foot right out of it, you know? Fresh, like you might look up and see a kid hopping around looking for their sneaker. But then, the two hiking buddies found another matching shoe, a brown fleece jacket and a pair of blue sweatpants that had been turned inside out. In their eyes, there was no way these clothes could be Jared Atadero's. The boy had been missing almost four years by that time, and it wasn't conceivable that they could be exposed to elements for all this time. It still looked brand new. But still, just in case, the two men took photographs of the clothes and called 911 at the next available opportunity. They complied with the detective's request to email over the photographs they'd taken, which were then forwarded to Alan Atadero, who was living in Littleton at the time. The detective was stunned when he received a reply stating that the clothes did indeed belong to Jared. Within 24 hours, state authorities had assembled a team consisting of Larimer County Sheriff's Office members, Larimer County search and rescue officials, 
rangers from the Colorado Division of Wildlife, and volunteers from an organization known as NecroSearch. All were directed to meet at Big South Trailhead to start search for remains of Jared. Later, with Alan Atadero and personnel from the local Child Protection Network joining the search effort, they managed to recover the remains of the entire outfit that Jared was wearing on the day of his disappearance, which were scattered over a 25-foot area. While the cloth jacket had what appeared to be puncture marks and the pants were tattered, the nylon shoes had little weathering, leading investigators to conclude that some of the items were sheltered from the elements and some were exposed. It was the simplest explanation, but not necessarily the correct one. Then, at a site at about 180 feet north and 20 feet higher in elevation than the place the clothing was found, police made a chilling discovery. It was a tiny piece of a human being's skull, wedged into a crevice and only barely visible with the naked eye. Nearby, on a log spanning the crevice where the skull fragment was found, police also found a human tooth. At 5 p.m. that evening, Alan Atadero and other members of the search teams summoned the throngs of TV news reporters to the trailhead and announced what he and the team had found. It was most definitely a breakthrough in the case, but again, the discovery only seemed to generate more questions than it answered, and it wasn't long before people were forced to come up with their own explanations. Canadian outdoorsman Les Survivor Man Shroud said that whatever is happening up on the Big South Trail is simply beyond human comprehension. In a lot of these cases, search and rescue or the volunteer searching people have already gone over certain areas, not once, not twice, but even dozens of times, he said. And then the child is found there maybe a year, maybe a few years later. It makes no sense at all. I've been out in the woods for years now and I've seen all kinds of things, but still, I can't make sense of it all. Hiker Rob Osborne says there's a good chance the area where Jared's clothes were found was in search during the initial effort and that it was down to one simple thing. No way could a kid have climbed up to that spot on his own. No way. I mean, it was a struggle for Gary and I to get there. It was very rough terrain, so maybe the police should have searched that area the first time around, but at the same time, I can't blame them for rolling it out. Police dog handler Jane Shmievsky's conclusion from the get-go was that Jared's disappearance was due to an animal encounter. I'm not sure officially what has really been released as a finality, but it pretty much points to an animal encounter. Nothing else explains how he could have been dragged up so high, unless of course it was a person that took Jared that morning. This was where SAR specialist Bill Nelson's testimony gets a little frightening. If a big cat actually took him, which is what I believe happened, it would have taken him someplace and buried him, he said. With all the activity that was going on, we probably scared it away, and then it would have come back later to dig up its meal. That's why no one found nothing. The kid was underground the whole time. But then surely volunteers or police would have noticed some disturbed earth somewhere, and Jared's clothing must have showed some signs of animal attack. It's inconsistencies like those that make Alan Atadero think something else is to blame for his son's disappearance. I hear constantly about a mountain lion, he said. But when they tested Jared's clothes, there was no mountain lion hairs, no DNA, no blood, nothing on his clothes. If a mountain lion would have attacked him, they would have gone for the stomach area. His jacket would have been threads. But his jacket was fine. I've talked to wildlife experts about this, Alan said, quick to reassure those who will listen. Jared's jacket would not have survived a mountain lion attack. His shoes that were found up in the mountain, as told by investigators, do not look like they were in the wilderness for years. I don't believe it. I just don't believe it. Alan also notes that the other thing interesting about the discovery of Jared's almost spotless shoes is that they would most definitely have been scuffed up if... He had been dragged up the side of the mountain, a la mountain lion attack. His pants were found in good condition with only minor damage from rodents and birds using threads for nesting materials. A large predator would have had to tear through the small boy's clothing in order to feed, yet there's no signs that that was the case. One of the reports that Alan Atadero read 
says that the reason why that forensic examiners didn't find any DNA or blood on Jared's clothing is because either he or something removed his clothes before he was attacked. We can only imagine how horrified his father would have been reading that. That was the very last thing he wanted to hear. The report goes on to say that because there were so many hikers coming up, the mountain lion that took Alan's son then absconded with his body 500 feet up the side of the cliff. Yet the question remains, if something took Jared's clothing off before he was attacked, why was it then found around 500 feet up the mountainside? His pants were found inside out, a clear indication that they had been pulled off in a hurry and not by anything that had claws or teeth. And as we've said, it's little details like this that cause Alan and his family to believe that someone out there knows a little more about the case than they're comfortable sharing. Jared's disappearance has never been fully explained by either U.S. law enforcement or their amateur counterparts, but it's important for mountain lion theorists to keep this in mind that, since 1915, there have been a grand total of 14 reported mountain lion attacks in the U.S. and Canada that have resulted in fatality. The chances of being attacked by one are tremendously low, and even lower when you consider that Jared was part of a large group of hikers. These hikers were intensively questioned by the police, as it seemed natural that at least one of them would have been held responsible for his disappearance, but multiple homicide detectives said interviews with hiking group members showed no obvious red flags and that no evidence pointed toward their guilt. As a result of such speculation, theories seeking to explain such mysterious events have evolved from purely rational possibilities to bizarre, conspiracy theory-like explanations such as cryptid attacks or alien abduction. But as much as people keep throwing ideas at the wall, nothing is sticking. And as more and more time goes by, it looks more and more likely that the disappearance of young Jared Hatadero will forever remain a heartbreaking but terrifying mystery. Prabdeep Prab Shran was a Canadian student and army reservist from Toronto, Canada, who moved to Australia in 2011 to pursue a degree in law at the prestigious Bond University on the Gold Coast in Queensland. Prab was 25 when he made a trip home to Canada in April of 2013, visiting family and friends during Australia's Easter study break. He returned to Australia at the beginning of May to finish his studies, but first planned to hike Mount Kosciuszko in the Australian Blue Mountains. Before his Blue Mountain trip, Prob stayed with some friends for a few nights at their apartment in the coastal city of Sydney, and on the 13th of May, these same friends said they drove him over to Padstow train station with all of his camping gear, believing he was due to catch a train out to the Blue Mountains. However, despite the fact that he wasn't due back for almost a week, Prob returned to Sydney the very next day, and began to exhibit some very unusual behavior. First of all, he visited a Sydney branch of the Juicy Rent-A-Car Company, hiring a van that he was due to return in Melbourne two days later, on the 15th of May. There's nothing unusual about this, of course, since Mount Kosciuszko was almost smack bang in the middle of the two cities, but Prob was already on his way to the Blue Mountains, so why in the world would he turn back to pick up a rental car? Later that day, Prob was spotted on security camera footage at a convenience store in nearby Jindabyne, presumably picking up supplies for his journey ahead. But instead of contacting the friends that he had been staying with, or at least getting a hotel for an overnight stay, Prob is believed to have slept in the van that night. The following morning on Tuesday, the 14th of May, Prob drove his rented van out to the Charlotte Pass Ski Resort, but instead of using the guest parking, he used the staff parking lot. After that, he set out to walk the main range trail. I only bring up the use of the staff parking because I think it indicates that Prob was under some unusual amount of stress. In any other circumstance, someone as intelligent and diligent as Prob might have been worried about the van being towed since he was using restricted parking. But no, on that occasion it doesn't seem to have bothered him in the slightest almost like he had more pressing opportunities. What's also extremely curious about this return to the mountain is that 
Prob didn't seem to be carrying any of the necessary survival items, as his map, compass, GPS system, tent, and cold weather clothing were left behind in the van. However, the lack of cell phone in the van and the fact that one of his food packages had been opened leads us to believe that he carried those with him onto the trailhead. But it seems the gear he had on him is of little import, considering that he never returned from his hike, and the truth being Prob's fate has remained a mystery ever since. Police managed to speak to a handful of other hikers who were also present on the main range trail that morning. They reported that the day had started off with some pleasant and sunny weather and no significant change was expected. All in all, a perfect day for hiking. However, by about noon, the temperature on the trail had dropped significantly and a raging blizzard had hit the area at lightning speed. The blizzard dumped a massive 30 centimeters of snow onto the ground in places and reduced visibility so much that at times, it was only possible to see a couple of feet in front of you. Over the 15th and 16th of May, the Juicy Rental Company attempted to contact Probs several times to tell them that he was overdue in returning the van, but obviously the calls weren't answered. On the 18th, the caretaker at Charlotte Pass became concerned after the van had been there for four days, with no evidence of any activity in the fresh snow. When he looked closer, he found that the van only had a one-day entry pass dated the 14th of May. This was obviously a huge red flag, so the caretaker contacted Juicy, who informed him that they had been unable to contact the individual who had rented the van. Suspecting someone might well be in danger, the caretaker immediately called the police to report what he had found. Later that same day, police tried to get in contact with rental car company's head office over in neighboring New Zealand, yet due to the difference in time zones, all they got was an answering machine. The next day, with the situation becoming critical, police managed to establish that Prob was missing and moved to notify his family back in Canada. A small-scale search then commenced, with two national parks and wildlife service rangers scouring the general area in which Prob had gone missing. Police also attempted to triangulate the signal from his cell phone, but due to the phone being off the Vodafone grid for over three days, they found they were unable to do so. Then on May 20th, a full-blown state emergency service search began with two helicopters and around 50 search and rescue personnel on foot, ski, and ski-do. Two days later, a report came in that two National Parks and Wildlife Service employees who were performing maintenance work on a mountain survival shelter heard what they believed to be an adult male's voice crying out for assistance. Deducing that the cries were coming from an area north of the shelter, Rangers attempted to track down whoever was calling out, but almost as soon as they set off, the cries ceased and the rangers failed to make any meaningful contact. A low-flying helicopter then patrolled over the area, hoping to see what the rangers had been unable to, but still, nothing was found. Later on, a man skiing in an area known as Little Austria reported that he too had heard a voice coming from the same direction at around the same time. Yet despite the cooperation, solid intelligence was no substitute for an actual physical find. A full 11 days after Prob had gone missing, the police requested that Vodafone set up two portable repeater stations, one at the trailhead of the main range track at Charlotte Pass, where Prob had parked his car, and one near the peak of Mount Kosciuszko. Five days later on May 30th, Vodafone provided information to police that the pings from Prob's mobile phone plotted a course where he was walking quickly, following the main range track anti-clockwise, and then left the track towards Mount Townsend, before losing contact with his phone somewhere on the northwest side of Mount Townsend. Private investigators hired by the Schrond family were convinced that they were closing in on Prob's position and urged the family not to give up. But following advice from a doctor specializing in survivability, it was believed that considering Prob had not attempted to contact anyone, he would have most likely perished after 14 days at the very latest, considering the climate and the terrain. After hearing this, police drastically scaled the search efforts back, although they too advised the Prob family not to give up hope until the worst news had been confirmed. And so began a privately funded search in which the Prob family offered $100,000 to 
as a reward for any information which led to Prop being recovered. They also offered members of the public a $250 daily rate of pay for aiding in the Blue Mountain search effort. This prompted all kinds of people to show up, some after the money, some because it was the right thing to do. The latter included a group of Canadian soldiers who promised to do everything they could to bring a brother soldier home. By July, the Australian winter began to roll in, bringing in heavy snows which hampered the last desperate search efforts. Eventually, after spending over $200,000 in private investigators, the Schron family were forced to call off the search. In September 2013, the financial reward for finding Prob, dead or alive, was finally withdrawn. Another two small police searches were conducted toward the end of 2013 and the start of 2014 as the summer allowed for better searching as the snow melted. But despite the last-ditch effort, not a trace of Prob was found. Two years later, in June of 2015, Prob was officially declared dead following a coroner's inquest into his disappearance. This coroner determined that Prob had died from exposure on the day he set out, after being caught ill-prepared by a blizzard somewhere on the northwest face of Mount Townsend. Despite no trace of Prob having ever been found, his family believes miracles do happen and that he will one day be found alive. But such misplaced hope only adds a sense of heartbreak to the terrifying prospect that a well-trained, perfectly healthy young man has most probably lost his life due to one of Mother Nature's wild mood swings. And if she can eat a man like Prob alive, the rest of us simply wouldn't stand a chance. Hey friends, thanks for listening. Click that notification bell to be alerted of all future narrations. And if you got a story, be sure to submit them to my subreddit, r slash letsreadofficial, and give and receive feedback from the community, and maybe even hear your story featured on the next video. And join a live stream to catch an invite to my Discord. And if you want to support me even more, grab early access to all future narrations for just $1 a month on Patreon, and maybe even pick up some Let's Read merch on Spreadshirt. And check out the Let's Read podcast, where you can hear all these stories in long compilation form and save huge on data. Located anywhere you listen to podcasts. Links in the bio. Thanks so much, friends, and I'll see you again soon.